Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Before we get into this episode, Dan and I are calling out all of you leadership educators. Are you struggling to spice up your learning activities? Do you need somebody to bounce your ideas off of that has no stakes in the game? Meaning they're not your students, they're not your faculty peers, they're not your dean? Well, connect with us for expert guidance on creating engaging and inclusive classroom learning environments. Are you an academic leader seeking a program reviewer? Dan has availability this semester and would love to help you elevate your approach with customized feedback on your program. You can reach out to both of us through LinkedIn today. Well, and welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Ben Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm excited for season nine because we're discussing generative learning for leadership educators. This is an approach to leadership development and education that focuses on cultivating generative thinking and behaviors in leaders. Generative thinking is the ability to create new possibilities, think systemically, and generate innovative solutions to complex problems. It involves shifting from reactive or problem-solving mindset to a more proactive and creative mindset. Yeah. And so when we think about this from a leadership educator lens, we're looking at how do we develop leaders who can navigate uncertainty, complexity, inspire collaboration, create positive change in all the places, spaces, organizations, communities where they find themselves. Um, When we're thinking about it from an educational or learning perspective, we're looking at active experiential learning, critical reflection, and the development of skills such as uh, systems thinking, adaptive leadership, how to deal with adaptive challenges, um, and emotional intelligence. Uh, We know our audience is familiar with a lot of those concepts. Our hopes to talk to guests this season about how they're thinking and doing, uh, specifically as we think about things like post-pandemic. So we've invited some leadership educators, we've got faculty in other disciplines who've won awards for their teaching, as well as some scholars um, that are doing some work in the spaces of things like artificial intelligence, ethics, social phenomena, uh, disruptions, and adaptive challenges, among other trends and issues that are affecting leaders and leadership educators in these spaces. So we're broadly asking, how are we processing what's happening and affecting our classrooms and campuses as we try to develop uh, curriculum, teach, and evaluate leadership learning and build community. So today we have Dr. Joey Crawford, Senior Lecturer in Management at the University of Tasmania and Editor of the Journal of University Teaching and Learning Practice. We're excited to have you today specifically because we love talking to people who live in different places in the world. And so we love having that additional perspective so that for our listeners, they're not just getting one perspective or one view. They're able to think about how they can teach and run programs from people that live outside of where Dan and I are based in the United States. In our episode today, we'll talk with Joey about the article, Leadership is Needed for Ethical Chat GPT, Character Assessment and Learning Using in Artificial Intelligence, in a more recent issue of the journal. Welcome to the show, Joey. Good morning and good evening. How are you going? So before we get into your article that's in the Journal of University Teaching and Learning Practice, we'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to your current teaching appointment at UT. Yeah, perfect. And thanks for having me. Um, my my transition, I think, into university was perhaps by accident a little bit, I think. And, and that's probably the journey a lot of us have taken where I got a bit curious about a few ideas and I kept moving around until I got a bit clear about what that idea was that I'm searching for. And I still think I'm probably searching a little bit for what that might be. But I got towards, and so my PhD was in authentic leadership measurement. And that was the area I started. And my, my undergrad dissertation was also in that area. Um, I got kind of a disenfranchised a little bit in my undergrad dissertation when um, it was around the time that uh, Fred Wollumba's research was being retracted and that there's a series of papers being retracted in authentic leadership. So I was thinking, oh, it'd be really great for us to work in this space of better and more ethical leadership. And then we started seeing some of the practitioners in and the researchers in that space not acting in a way that was as good. So it was, it was quite difficult, I think, 
Um, and then I went in and said, let's go, let's go again and let's try to make a better measurement. And I spent a few years working on the psychometric development of how we might measure leadership behaviour. And that's that's been quite interesting for me. Uh, towards the end of my PhD, I started trying to work out whether we could measure leadership across levels. Um, in in my in my state, we had a um, an integrity commission. So I, the government had commissioned a, one of the departments of um, the government to be investigated for poor quality practice. Um, and, and we saw that it was the CEO and the, and the board director that were actually the key components, but the effects were, there was a large scale effect on a lot of the um, staff throughout the organisation. So I started thinking, how can I simulate that in a PhD context when I only have about you know seven months to collect this data and analyse it? And I thought to myself, let's use um, teaching staff where we have a kind of a teaching manager who's the unit coordinator in our world. So they're the person who develops the course. They're often like what I do now for a job. Then we have tutors and, and sessional staff that work for them that actually work with students. And then we have the students. And I surveyed all three of them um, at different points in time and paired the data and started working my way through actually what happens between the human interactions, not the pedagogical or not the, um, the educational interactions, but actually the human components and found that the leadership effects of the unit coordinator or the person in charge of the, the course, even though they weren't seeing and facing their students, had an indirect effect on, on student outcomes and student leadership. And that, um, as I was moving out of my PhD kind of period, I started sharing that with my university that became quite interested in hearing about what that was and how we might better think about teachers as people and teachers as people that could be cultivated to be better leaders and as we worked our way through I then moved into the deputy vice chancellor's office rather than into the school of business and um, quite controversial I think in, in my in my world and I started working more on the kinds of outputs that that area needed whilst maintaining my connection to leadership so I started working more in student spaces and working on thinking about how student leadership happens and how student well-being is shaped and informed as well as continuing to publish and work in the space of leadership. And um, more recently, I've returned to um, uh, the School of Business in my university and started to think about focusing more clearly on how we might develop people and behaviour. And, and I have returned again to teaching inside of the leadership space, which has been quite exciting and, and fun to um, continue to practice some of the things that I've, I've been thinking about and, and they've been bubbling behind the scenes. I love that. That's such an interesting perspective to have, or not perspective, but I guess um, area of, uh, of to explore because I one of the things that I've, has always occurred to me, and I think it's just like baked into like my identity as a leadership educator is this idea that like we are leaders and we're modeling practices as educators, as faculty in front of the classroom, almost more so than like any other responsibility we have when we're trying to facilitate leadership learning and to see that the instructors had this indirect effect on students, even when they weren't directly involved. But I, I, be, I guess I'm curious around things like, is it how perhaps they set up some of the learning activities, how they set up some of the interactions, the expectations that that they shared? Or uh, I, I guess I'm just, I have so many, I have so many questions for for you around maybe like what what you found and maybe what your hypotheses were going into that before we jump into some of these some of these other questions about about the article that you that you published. Yeah, my, my theory was always, and um, my theory remains, I think that the human interactions that we have actually mean quite a lot. And if you remove the positions, you remove the power, you remove all those things in between, it's actually perhaps how connected you are to your leader or your manager, and how and and that's probably tangentially how I ended up in working in the space of belonging yeah. a few years later or closer to now, but that when instructors support their their tutors and they work with them and they build good res support resources and guides and connect in with them, you know, I, I try to have coffee with my instructors every um, handful of weeks. Um, although a lot of instructors could, a, a lot of um, tutors, sorry, could go an entire semester without seeing their academic. They could only communicate through email. And so there's lots of different ways to configure that relationship, which means that the quality of the relationship actually might support the tutor to engage more deeply, um, to connect more carefully, to be more passionate about what they're doing because they're valued and their um, their work is important, and they know it's important. It's being recognised as that. And I'm also I'm also kind of the person who's quite ready to um, get get a little bit of trouble with 
um, my uh, committees and whatever else when when I hear a tutor say actually I, I can't this particular thing isn't working it's not doing really well in Australia I'm not sure in in your context but it's quite long to um try to change assessments you can't just kind of change an assessment and then it's it's changed it has to go through like seven thousand committees and four hundred briefing papers and <laughs> whatever else and um that process means that you can't you have to kind of have a long lead time to change but if it's not supporting students and it's not doing well for whatever reason, this particular student cohort, it's not working for. I've always tried to take the approach that we should actually try to optimise that wherever we can, not throw um, throw everything out and start again, but kind of work out how we might um, clean up what's perhaps wrong. And and I think those things matter. Um, uh, what did they when, when I used to when I was growing up, I used to know everyone by their coffee order because I worked in a, a cafe, and that over time you develop relationships with these people on the basis of their order. Um, they'd come back in and they'd feel valued and respected and, and because you knew their order. Um, you knew that, that they were valued because they were coming in regularly and you remembered more than just their first name for the calling out of the order. That experience was more smooth and they then connected more deeply. So um, two things I'll say. So one, it reminds me of LMX theory, which on my end, we don't really talk about a lot, but it's exactly what you're saying. If you have great individual relationships with your followers, then in turn, the organization will be better. They'll do better. And so so it, it makes a lot of sense. And then um, I think about the whole coffee order thing. I went to this pizza shop on campus and the pizza guy looked at me and was like, I haven't seen you. I thought you left the university. And I'm rolling because I'm like, I really must come here a lot. And he was upset that I wasn't there. So, but it also speaks to in our, in our, our, my university community, you are connected to apparently the pizza guy, just as much as you're connected to your students and your peers and your faculty members. And it's in those rich moments that you get that sense of belonging and that feeling that um like he genuinely I thought and it wasn't the money he missed I really think he just genuinely missed seeing me because we have great conversations but that sense of belonging is curated in these spaces that you don't even think about um it's just in those daily regular interactions yeah and and we just published a pa that paper in studies in higher education and that was um we had about 1.3 million students and we were asking questions around what causes belonging and we, we threw everything into a big machine and asked to spit out causal results um we're still processing that. It's a very large sample set. That at least the initial findings are published, but we're still working on what that means. But what you're saying there is kind of exactly what we found. We found that the thing that was really important to belonging was connection. It was about interactions with other people. Uh, we didn't have measures about quality of connection, but rather just whether they had connections. Um, but much less so things like identity, which is something that. Um, we're still kind of working out what that means. So I think the demographic factors weren't important. It was the experiential factors that meant something and place was in there, but less so, which are the three kind of ways that I've, and a lot of people think about belonging, but the quality connection, the quality interaction was what meant a lot. And that's that's where I think this conversation of leadership and belonging actually sits so neatly together. Leadership is quite about a relationship between two people or groups or pairs or whatever else. And a sense of belonging is about how people um, find meaningful and um, quality connections with people that are regular over time. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick. And then I want to, we will for real jump into this uh, conversation around chat GPT. We, we had um, a, a gentleman, uh, David Franklin on our podcast back in April of 2021, he wrote a book called invisible learning, which was uh, from his experience as a teaching assistant working with Ron Heifetz in the Kennedy school over there at Harvard. And he, in addition to that, was working in a statistics, an undergraduate statistics course, and they used a similar like classroom as organization approach in that class. And he was blown away by the, like you said, this like human, like just treating students like humans, like developing relationships, making it a transformational instead of a transactional experience. And the, the outcomes and the stories that students were sharing from this of just what an impactful experience that they had had, not because of what they learned about statistics, but because of the deep bonds and the relationships. And to your point, that sense of belonging that had been formed because of the way that the instructor facilitated that course. And it was just, it was really kind of a striking thing because it's not, it's funny. I think about this and I can't, 
can't I can't remember who to attribute it to, but it was something I cited in my dissertation. But the quote was something to the effect of "It's not magic, it's pedagogy," right? Um, and and I love that. And I, I'm gonna have to go back and and uh, see if I can find who who it was that um, that that came from. So all right. So thinking about this, and there's so there's so much about around a sense of belonging. And so as I'm hearing you share this background that you have from your research, it makes a lot of sense of some of the things that y'all focused on in this article. So one of the things that that you cited um, early on in the article, um, as we think about disruptions, was this myriad stressors and like the mental health issues that college students in the US and Australia were experiencing and how things like social and peer pressure and academic work, financial concerns, academic pressure, like all these responsibilities that they juggle. And my students are busier today than they've ever been. It blows my mind. And how this in turn has had substantial implications for students' academic performance and high stress can make students particularly susceptible to plagiarism and the misuse of artificial intelligence and things like specifically like chat GPT. So what are you seeing and like what should faculty and leadership educators be worried about here as you as you think about this? Yeah, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. Students are more stressed and, and that stress and anxiety and all the things happening in their lives is producing situations where they're seeking out convenience in their work and that convenience is producing, you know, perhaps not their own work. Uh, when when we first started to have conversations around AI in the late part of last year, I think we, we very quickly, a lot of people in Australia were very scared and, and across the world, I think that was the case too. There are a number of universities that banned it. I know in France, they threatened to expel you from the French higher education system if you were caught using um, AI. I don't know whether it was ever enforced, but that was one of the threats. And there's a number of places where it's still banned. Um, I I took a bit of a different approach and um, I was quite close with um, the people making the decisions because my boss at the time um, was the person who was the organiser or the person in our university who actually makes the decision about what we do. And I think we had a lot of conversations about the the idea that it's quite cool, actually. Like it's a lot of these things are pretty impressive and they're quite exciting to use. It's just about um, how we use them ethically, not necessarily how we engage with um, banning them or blocking them, whatever those things are. We didn't know then that we probably would never be able to actively and accurately detect AI really effectively. But back then we were kind of thinking, actually, we just got to work on how we treat people like people and these are tools that people might use um and that was it kind of comes back if you look at the first page of my um my undergraduate dissertation thesis i talked about um cheating in in um, harvard degrees in harvard mbas there's a few studies that show that a large number of students self-declare that they cheat in very high profile mba programs um and the same is the case all across the world and you ask them why and they they talk about convenience too busy um, don't know what to do, unsupported. Um, but a lot of academics, even back then, um, Thomas Wright, um, I believe, was talking about the idea that character was really important and that char- character was was kind of the um, the insulator for um, having people cheat. You know, pe- people that are ethical and have high integrity aren't going to cheat, regardless of the situation and context. They're more likely to go to their their um their teacher or instructor and say hey look i'm really sorry i've I've had some issues and um here's what's happening and here's what i here's what support i might need and that was the approach that i've taken from the start and i and i kept seeing people producing um and me i i review uh two to three papers a day for my journal that's kind of my morning routine um i receive all the papers that come in there's there's six um hundred or so that come in at the moment per year I read them all first and give feedback on most of them and kind of remove a lot from the system, give them good feedback and then send a small number through to publication. And I was seeing huge numbers of papers come through that spoke about AI, artificial intelligence and AI, academic integrity. And I just thought of the wrong narrative. Yes, it's important, but the integrity problems are a symptom rather than actually perhaps the the main problem itself. There's all these complex things happening that students don't seem to be prepared for um, we're not supporting that preparation and the result is then they're cheating. And so I looked at it, not that actually students are cheating, there's a real big problem here, but we aren't supporting the students to build the capability they need to resist that temptation because it's a, such an easy temptation. I was trying to write a case study for my unit 
um, a, f- a few weeks ago. And, and I just thought, oh, I'll just use, like, I can make it write a case study for me in seconds. Um, but it doesn't have all the things that I need. I'm looking for very specific things that I want the students to be able to engage with. And so there are places and times to get ideas and I, I get to generate names for me and, and other various things so I can kind of um, make my life a little easier. But that's what we led to was actually there's the blogging decline is based on connections. People are now coming to university, at least some, without a huge interest in the actual learning process. Um, they want to graduate with a degree. I teach um, accounting students um, for part of my offering. And a lot of the accounting students are very much looking for their graduation ticket to do their next level, their CPA or CA, to then go be an accountant because they know there's a job there waiting for them. Um, so they kind of convenience run their way through. And I, I think our job as um, leadership educators, they're often plugged into various degrees rather than a Bachelor of Leadership, is to actually work at how we re-engage those people in practices of I value learning because it might help me grow. I'm not just passing a leadership unit and now I can put on my CV that I, I'm a good leader or that I've got a HD in high distinction in leadership, but rather that I actually want to be a better leader now. I'm a bit better than I was before, but I've still got a bit to go. Well, you know, I, I love that you started with the cheating isn't new because when, when it first popped up on the radar in my department, you know, I had a colleague who was kind of on the bayonet train and whenever anything comes out that's trendy, like I'm the person that won't get that first version of whatever the new version of the iPhone is because I need them to do the security patch and the fixes and all that stuff so that I don't get caught up in whatever nightmare it is that's happening. I apologize if anybody out there is like a first early adopter. I am not. Um, But when it first popped up, you know, I, I started thinking about, so any new tool, I looked at it as a tool and I said, any new tool, I got to one, figure out how is this tool being used in professional practice? Meaning are, if, if my colleagues, like I teach PR and leadership, if my public relations colleagues are using this in the field, then I got to figure out how to make it work in this space so that I'm like introducing it, but I'm also introducing it to their process of working. So my students, uh, especially in my writing classes, it's about kind of what's your writing process and where does this fit in? And, and once I started asking those questions, I felt like I could, I felt more confident about my decision to coach my students on how to use it. And before we even started talking about its use, I actually brought it up during our ethics and public relations chat. And I said, okay, so what do we think? How are we thinking? And I had students who were like, no, I am not using it almost because they valued and they prided themselves on being great writers and they felt like it was a shortcut. And so then I get into, well, actually, have you ever been in it? And, and no, I heard, you know, and I'm like, all right, well, go, go into it. So then I also had a student who used it and it was interesting because the, the, her output was good, but because I, we, we do a lot of in-class work, I knew I knew like there was stuff on there. I was like, you don't know this word. Like, you don't know what this phrase means. Like you're you're just lovingly, you are just not, you're not an entertainment industry expert to know what this means. And so when when we had the conversation, it was, I'm stressed, I'm tired, I just needed to get something in. Um, and and it actually, I think, allowed for a better learning moment because I said, you know, I understand that and I respect that. And because in my classroom, I have like a caring teaching approach. Like I tell them I care about them. I want them to do well because I had shared that she she could say that. And I, I, I shared with her, though, our industry is relationship based in the same way leadership is relationship based. And this is something that either builds or destroys your relationship with somebody unknowingly, like another teacher might fail you. Another teacher might not even be paying attention to you graded accordingly and pass you and you're not doing the work. And so, so having that space where I knew them as people, I didn't even need, uh, you know, canvas to tell me this person didn't write this. Um, but it was only because of those relationships that you talk about building. And um, it, it also, I feel like it's our job as faculty to slow students down, meaning they come in, they feel like they can watch YouTube, TikTok, learn everything. But I feel like it's on us to pump the brakes and say, OK, well, let's test what you watch in that YouTube video and see what you actually know and can communicate effectively to other people. And I think once you kind of have established that pattern, that's where you get to those true learning moments where students have the confidence and the competence that they believe they have 
coming into that space. So I appreciated some of that. Yeah, these are great points, Lauren. So, you know, Joe, you in y'all's article, you, you point specifically to what you call the need for good leadership in teaching chat GPT. Uh, one of your key arguments in the article is that, and you spoke to this a little bit in your previous response, that cultivating a sense of moral character in students is an imperative. Uh, you suggest that can be done through effective teacher role modeling, uh, leadership development opportunities, uh, or through continuous self-awareness, ethics, and decision-making training. So that sounds great in print. What are some <laughs> what are some practical strategies for implementing some of those approaches? Yeah, so so it's a good question you raised because that was something that when we wrote that, I, I think I was thinking, how do I do that? That's a really cool idea. How do I now do that? Yeah. And so my leadership unit now, I've got uh, two things that I'm working on, and um, one is one is a proactive design. So. And we've just finished, so I've just done the post-test, which is kind of cool. I kind of wish I got ethics now because it all worked as much better than I thought it was going to work. But a lot of the students coming into my unit don't have a really strong um, connection to themselves. They don't have a really strong connection to their emotions and how they feel, how they're engaging. So when they're dealing with stress, they're actually not responding in ways that are what a, a well-educated and well-trained and, and well uh, a person with high emotional intelligence would actually be able to do so we started i started embedding quietly um some affective labeling activities which is a very simple thing it's it's about learning how to um, recognize how you're feeling right now um, and then being able to attribute cause and over time there's a few different things about helping them develop complexity in how they label and describe their emotions over space and and how subjects in um, my university are 13 weeks long so it's not a whole lot of time but I got them to do in their first week when they were waiting to start class a survey. So the emotion, one of the emotional intelligence surveys. I reported the scores and I didn't tell them why it was. And so emotional intelligence is really interesting and we had a bit of a chat about it, but that was all. And then as we kind of worked our way through every class, we had a new affective, um, um, affective labeling activity worked our way through. And um, a week and a half ago was when I did my post-test and we started working on discussions around what what a change in terms of their self-awareness which is what i was working on the most um and their self-management and their emotional regulation and we saw a reasonable increase in the students seven or eight percent and they started to see um but what i could see more importantly was they actually were able to recognize when they were feeling something in, in, a, in a perfect world they'd go into another unit then and work out how to um, manage emotions i think would be the next thing so i might have to work out how i do it faster rather than over a 13-week period with the intention that when students are engaging in cheating practices, my belief is usually that it's because they're they're worried, they're anxious, they're they're they're, they're angry, they're, they're something else has happened in their lives, they're not processing, so they've delayed it and put it off. And those self-regulatory behaviors are not um, cultivated effectively because they've never had to. All their education up to up to now has been very much based on what's in class, they're learning about maths, they're learning about accounting, whatever. They haven't been learning about themselves. And so helping start that reset is really important. I think this is, is the first part. And the second part is that I, I actually embed um, AI usage into, into what we do. So I, I require them to, as part of their practice, um, engage with AI as, as a communicate communication tool. So we used to have this activity that we did where students would develop their own leadership philosophy. And, and usually in, in the first round, they're pretty average um, statements about how they think they lead or want to lead. And they're somewhere between a um a descriptive and a normative kind of comment and then they're meant to go out and ask people for feedback on it and they go out to their their mum and they go out to their dad and their friends and um their workers and, and we try to talk about them picking good people to talk to um a bit later on in the mix i then started asking them to use the ai tool so this this year is the first time they'll do that they're using the ai tool and they're required to use it because i know that they they are looking to their employment prospects and that's something that that motivates them to engage effectively and we know that ai is going to be embedded in a lot of business practices it already is for our marketers and for a lot of people in those spaces so teaching them how to use some of the tools um, is part of what i try to do so get them ready for next steps but also do it in a way that's really meaningful from a, um, a learning perspective and what the students are finding is i i give them example prompts they can use to learn a bit of prompt engineering in the um, software but getting them familiar with opening up AI and using it, it also kind of confuses students a lot because a lot of academics kind of say, don't use it. It's not 
you know, it's not a, it's not, um, you know, you need to do everything yourself. Whereas this actually isn't doing the writing for them. It's actually giving them feedback. And so they put in their leadership philosophy and they say, can you please critique it? Can you give me some feedback? Can you help me um, pull out the weaknesses in my current leadership philosophy? And then they write, write a structured reflection around, well, no, sorry, unstructured reflection on how they, how that pro process changed their leadership philosophy. And then they write their next leadership philosophy. Then they go out to their peers. Um, and so they're in that process, they're kind of using it as a friend, a critical friend that's a bit less um, intimidating because it's a it's a robot, it's a machine. But there are limitations with that. And, and we've seen some, it, it's been a really effective tool. Um, I'm trying to work out how to respond to a, a concept that the AI people call stochastic parroting. So the idea that it perpetuates bias. So um, there are a series of students, like minority students, for example, that We'll get, they'll get good results and they get good feedback, but it might start redirecting them towards uh, more prototypical styles of leadership, and that's not the intent. It's, the intent is to help them work out whatever style of leadership or thing of leadership they're working on. Um, and so I've seen one or two come through so far that, that are a little bit kind of it's trying to redirect them a little bit more than um, I would like, but part of that is them being perhaps critical as well and thinking, actually, I can see it's pushing me in a direction I don't want to go in, let me let me reject that assertion. And really quickly, it's so interesting you say that because I um, often heard the they're going to use it to craft their papers and cheat, but the using it as a communication tool. And like I know for me, I always put like I'll put stuff in there and say, where are the gaps? So that it helps me identify maybe some things that I've, I'm missing or I'm not communicating clearly. And it's been really helpful in that aspect. But, but I love that you're using it as a way for them to get feedback before you actually give them some feedback. So they're able to think through that. I also like too, students nowadays like criticizing people. And I don't know if you run into this, but my students love criticizing people. And so it's like a, a best friend that will criticize with you. Um, but the benefit is they're criticizing your work so that you can improve your work before you put it out there. But you can also disagree with it. You can say, OK, well, that's not really me or that's not what I said. So it's it's like a, a like a free friend that offers criticism. Yeah, that's, that's kind of that's interesting, Laura, because it's you know, it's it, it's it, it gives you an opportunity to bounce ideas off of. Again, it's not perfect. Right. It's still artificial intelligence, but um, you can do it in a with a lot of psychological safety, right? Like you're not going to be like, oh man, I can't believe what I said to the chat bot, right? You know, like you'll get over it, right? I don't think you're going to be up all night about that. And, but, um, and, you know, Joy, it's a really interesting idea um, and connecting some dots for me, even though I've, I've experimented with some of this in some of my own teaching specifically over the the summer in a, in a graduate seminar where we use chat GPT extensively, where students were trying it out and, and experimenting ways they can apply it in there and some of their own, uh, not only roles as students, but roles in the, in the workforce. And they were in a variety of different, some worked in higher education, some worked in healthcare, some worked in, in international business and what have you. And this idea of using the chatbot as an alternative to something like peer review or going to the writing center. I think that's like low hanging fruit where I think the learning is so key is, and this is something that is just so baked into how we do leadership uh, pedagogy anyway, is it's reflecting on that process because that's going to build self-awareness. That's going to enhance your decision-making processes too. As I think about, hey, the chatbot said, gave me this feedback. Well, you got to discern that, right? You got to say, yeah, that's good feedback. No, that's not good feedback because what you don't want is the chatbot doing the work for you. You want to be able to say, hey, you know what? Um, I know enough about myself and enough about how I feel about, in this case, of my leadership philosophy. That feedback's meaning, you know, that, that doesn't have any meaning for me. Oh, wow, that that's a good point. Maybe I should think about this particular part, you know, more so or or lesser, or, or how can I uh, how can I shift my thinking to to make this more more complex and more representative of how I'm actually going to approach my my leadership world in whatever context it is that that you know you these students find themselves in. Yeah, um, just picking up on a point you made there though as well. The one of the one of the concerns that I've been kind of working on with the AI conversation is, and we've got a paper in um, in press now that has the evidence. Um, is that when you when students use these AI tools as a replacement for human interaction, we start to see some adverse social effects. And so when when um, the students actually I need help with getting something done, and they go and they go and use the AI tool instead of going and seeking out 
a librarian or a student support advisor or whatever those people are, um, as you were kind of reflecting there, there can be a cost. And the, the cost that we're seeing, like we've just developed a new model of social support, which is a four-factor model. So instead of it being about family and friends and um, I think co-workers, um, it's family, friends, co-workers and chat GDP and it models really well. And we've built out essentially a four-factor model and we're kind of working on that. And we find that AI usage really supports directly the, the, the chat GDP component of um, social support. But um, that component has a negative effect on all other forms of social support. And likewise, close friends improves social support mechanisms but decreases chat GDP support. And you kind of see how that flows across the model and it, um, at least for the... 400 odd students from across the world that we worked with for this particular piece that told us something quite interesting that there might be a kind of a substitution effect happening in terms of how people are feeling social support and the effects of good uh, human social support is positive largely positive to um, uh, our affective condition and our behaviors Um, our chat gdp support doesn't seem to do as well in those spaces and, and in some some contexts has a negative effect yeah, it's a kind of an interesting segue to one of the things that y'all write about in uh, some of the closing paragraphs of this article. Y'all speaking quite a bit about, you know, this flow state and how ChatGPT can help students achieve this by doing things like reducing the cognitive load, increasing motivation, like facilitating that that sense of flow. And so I think about, you know, when I'm rocking and rolling, when I'm working on a book chapter or an article, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, what's that, you know, or... or Oh, how can I restate that? Or, oh man, they want the abstract to be 150 words. I thought it was 250 words, right? And to be able to throw that right into chat GPT and be like, hey, can you summarize this for me and knock off 100 words? That's keeping me in my flow state without throwing me on into a totally different direction and, and causing me frustration. And I think that's giving me some of my psychological needs, like helping me to sustain like my competence, my autonomy. And so I, I'm just basically, yes, what, what y'all were, were sharing is some of these some some of the things that you found and some of the suggestions that you have, I think were really speaking to me and, and resonating. And I think I'm finding ways to do this in my own academic work. And it's helping me to think more critically about not only the work that I'm approaching, but how I can use this, you know, quote unquote, guide on the side, chat GPT. It's not doing the work for me by any means, but it's there. It's there when you need it. Like you said, like a friend that's part of your, it's part of your supporting cast. I mean, almost like when we do residencies for our PhD students, we talk so much about social emotional and like having a support system, like is ChatGPT now part of your support system too, right? So I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on that? And and are, what are maybe some other strategies you've seen are effective in that zone? Yeah, the, the flow state was uh, a really important part of that paper that we were working on, the conversation that how do, how do we achieve flow? It's one of the things that I spend a lot of time in my PhD refining. Like I write quite a lot. I'm a I'm an avid writer, like I really enjoy writing. So I, I find it quite easy. Um, if you asked any of my um, office mates over the years about how they communicate with me when I'm writing, it's by going up and tapping me on the shoulder. It's not standing in front of me talking to me because I don't really notice you're there. And I can just sit there for, and I'll, I'll look at the clock and I'm like, oh, it's 7 p.m. Oops, I've just missed four meetings. Um, and I have never had a huge amount of trouble doing that. I've just locked in and kind of done my own thing and it, um, I'm not sure where it comes from. It's just a, a bonus for me, I suppose. But I've always tried to work out how we simulate that for students and how we build environments that people might be able to do that. And I had a colleague who is a terrible writer, really great thinker, terrible writer. And is, um, and a big part of what I'd have to do working with her would be to kind of rewrite her stuff to make it the way that she said it, essentially. Like she'd say it really, really well and then write it really, really problematically. For, I don't know why. But I, was, I, I then said, oh, why don't you, rather than worrying about, you know, making it writing, just focus on the first draft and then go and put it through. Um, back then, before AI, it was, um, you'd use Google Translate. And I said, translate it to like French and then translate it back to English. Um, and it might clean up a bit of the language. It didn't really work very well, but it kind of did a little bit. It kind of organised some of the logic because um, Google Translate was trying to organise in sentences that made sense for English. So it, it did fix up some of the writing, but not well. We then tried Grammarly, and Grammarly worked reasonably well, Grammarly pre-AI. Um, but ChatGDP worked really well, where we said, put your whole thing in, ask it to pull out, ask it to um, clean up your writing for you. And then she would make incredible drafts um, and ideas and dot points and then 
put it and then the AI would help her build stuff from that. And then it's an incredible piece of work. And so what it did was it removed, I think, the anxiety attached to perfection. You know, I, I want it really great the first time. I want it amazing. And it just let her focus on just doing. Um, I, I just want to write. I'm going to write from the top to the bottom, write my sections out, and then I'll deal with the referencing, the style, and the what page number that quote was on and all those things a bit later on. And AI helped do that because it meant that you knew that was doing that. And then you'd see in her writing little stars, and the stars were um, a reference to herself when she was in that state of flow. Um I've got to come back to that and I've got to get the AI to, to fix that up for me or something. And so that part helped. Um, the the other part I think around using these tools is, yes, they can support us. And I think that's a really important part of um, good leadership practice is that uh, we, we're doing work at the moment on leader loneliness and that's something that leaders experience a lot where you don't feel like there's anyone on your side because you're about to push through a huge strategy, which is difficult. Um, you've had to make redundant and a senior manager is trying to practice good leadership but has to fire 10 people um, because there's no money left or whatever's happened or they've just lost a key account or you have to go work with an employee uh, work with an employee who's actually a high performer but really horrible to work with and making decisions around some of those things that we do on a regular basis but it's quite challenging and things like chat GDP might be a really good social support there because you might be able to ask it questions and ask it, you know, act like Nelson Mandela and speak to me in and um, speak to me in this context. And you can now use um, ChatGDP and um, a few and a, a couple of other ones to have it talk to you. So you can ask it things and have it talk back in in particular voices and various bits and pieces. I've got um Morgan Freeman at the moment reads me my reads me my um uh, journal articles that I'm working on when I'm walking or like at the gym or something at the moment because I, I've kind of I read so much that I, that I know I need to read a little bit more to kind of keep up and then you um so listening is kind of like my approach but plugging in um uh, papers into AI tools that read to you is pretty cool as well so there's lots of different ways you can be supported but you've got to work out which one kind of fits within your your own structure I think you know, well, I, I had a very serious comment until you said Morgan Freeman is is in your because <laughs> in my head I'm like, well, which Morgan Freeman are we talking about? But meaning, what movie like Morgan? Shawshank Freeman? Redemption. <laughs> it was like yeah. was, was my was my attempt. He's a he's a bit older in this particular um AI, but that was my goal. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, like he was sitting on sitting on the on the park bench, um, <laughs> speaking very softly and um deeply <laughs> yes yeah i feel like uh viola davis and woman king would be like the person i would want to to read my voice but but before you said that it, it made me think about a couple of things like you talked earlier about prompt engineering and you know if we were thinking about the cheating piece of it um you still had to be good with prompt engineering to get an output that you could submit and then it really be of quality so you're still doing the work it almost like shifts though where you're doing the work um when i talk with my students about it a lot of it, it it helps them get through their anxiety so if they are you know don't know where how to write about leadership or can't organize their thoughts around leadership they can drop it in there and say summarize or organize or be a leadership professor or be a leadership student and and then the prompt and so in going back to kind of the original purpose of this article and addressing stress, it, there's a positive way to use it to address some of those things that are presenting challenges for them. The brainstorming piece and then the editing piece, which again, mirror what we would do in, in professional practice. Like I never say the real world because we're constantly in the real world. I always say in a professional space or professional practice, because that's really what we're getting at. Um, I also think, too, there's a common stereotype that young people are um, digital natives and it's been debunked thoroughly. But your research sounds like it supports that even though they have all this access to technology, they still want those social systems that are created. And, and no matter how great ChatGPT is, um, it's not going to replace their friends, connecting with faculty, connecting with other leaders on campus. And so it's it's a beautiful thing in that it can help them, but it's also, it's not replacing something that truly at its core is um, one of the most beneficial things about college or about being um, in these leadership education programs. So I had those two thoughts um, before I asked you, was there anything else you'd like to share with, with our audience? 
Yeah, and I, I think it's worth, like, there's one comment that you made, actually, which is probably a good final comment for me to make. And um, students want um, human connection, but I actually think that it's that students need the human connection and they want the convenience. And that's that perhaps the conflict that we're now likely to see for the next period of time. And, and I suspect that's going to be the same with employees, followers, leaders, and everyone in between, that actually we do need connection and we need actively. And if you look at um, uh, uh, Roy Baumeister and um, Leary's paper from 95, that paper spoke back then about the, the fundamental human need for us to belong. Um, uh, Leary then spoke in like 2005 or six and spoke about the idea that we need to have, um, we feel social pain in the same and similar ways that we feel, experience phys um, physical pain and started to build those connections that actually we do have a fundamental human um, desire to be and around other people. We're, we're perhaps heard, heard um, we have a herd mentality by default perhaps, but as we have more of these tools available to us, we tend to do things that, that um, almost alienate or, or, or reduce our ability to fulfil that need. Um, if you walk into a cafe, and um, I use probably coffee analogies way too much, but if you walk into a cafe now, we know that people need to connect. But when you walk into a cafe and walk into a Starbucks and you'll see 10 people waiting in line, and if you count how many of them are sitting there on their phones, um, doom scrolling, for example, or they're working their way through their emails or doing something that's actually counterproductive to human connection, when they have all these people around them, they're actually sitting there doing some, you know, connecting with someone else by Facebook in a in a more shallow interaction, perhaps. Um, likewise, you see people in cafes. I was I was um out with my partner. And I was it was a date night, and I saw these two other couples sitting there on the um on the bar near us, and both of them, for good periods of time, were sitting there in silence, scrolling. And it wasn't, it wasn't to call, I'll just check that thing that we're going to do next Tuesday to make sure it's booked. Something that they, you're kind of doing on the phone together in a way. It was actually they were independently scrolling away, casually sharing with each other some uh, good picture or meme that they liked. But this is, this is the, the conflict that I think exists in the AI space that we probably have to start to think about how we resolve. We, knew, we know it happened in the online gaming space where people became addicted to games and felt connection and felt um, in, in uh, MMORG, whatever those mass, multi mass, whatever <laughs> role playing games. Players. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, where, right. yeah, where people were building connections with other people in the games and they were doing it in through avatars and whatever else. It happened um, when social media became a thing and we started to become addicted and, and started to measure ourselves a little bit against those connections and again, um, increase our number of. Facebook friends and followers, but progressively the, the world has been decreasing the number of close friends in most Western nations. And now we might have the same problem where actually this thing is even more lifelike. It's even more human than any, any other technology we've been using before. It's personalised. It builds connections with us that we actually probably are going to feel quite intensely, even more so than when your favourite character on a TV show dies I think that AI might be that kind of level of emotional connection eventually when they when it gets to kind of like five or six um, in its versions that we might have to actively kind of, say, kind of say, how do we teach people that this is so important for us to use and engage with because it makes our lives so much easier, more convenient, but it, it can't replace or I don't think it can replace those meaningful human connections where... Um, the AI is not going to call you up a week later because you haven't replied to an email or, you know, your friends have said, hey, well, let's go have a dinner on Tuesday night and you haven't replied. I'm not sure the AI is going to do that for you, or at least not yet. Um, and I'm, I'm not that keen on probably going out for dinner with an AI unless maybe maybe Morgan Freeman's AI, I, I, <laughs> we'd go out and have some um, some great conversations or, or someone, um, uh, some famous philosophers or something that um, are long gone. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing all that with us. Joey, this is this has been really insightful. Just a brilliant conversation and definitely gave Lauren and I plenty to think about. And I'm sure it's going to give our listeners plenty to think about as well. So uh, again, thank you so much and best of luck to you and all your academic and scholarly pursuits. And I uh, hope we get to run into each other in the uh, in the physical space uh, sometime in the future. Yeah, you too. And now that the, now the world's traveling again, maybe we will.
leadership educators who may have a little trouble coming up with creative learning activities to further their course and program learning outcomes are now able to meet with Dan or me to discuss the process they use to ensure engaged and inclusive learning environments. Or if you're an academic leader looking for an external reviewer, Dan brings years of experience in education evaluating leadership programs. Contact us via LinkedIn today. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at leadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.